Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. Life finds a way. Even in the face of incredible pressure from other organisms, climate change, and pollution, species still find ways of persisting. Sometimes this pressure is too much, and populations go extinct. Why are some species able to survive, and others able to persist? How much pressure is too much pressure? And can species find ways to survive through their interactions with other species? We dive into all of these pressing questions and more with our guest this week, Dr. Diane Campo, a distinguished professor from the University of California, Irvine. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello, and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Melinda Gonzalez. And I'm Chris Troy. Today, we have with us Diane Kempo, a ecology and evolutionary biologist from UC Irvine. Welcome. Thank you, Melinda and Chris. Uh, we're really happy to have you with us today. So what interactions do you research? So um, I look mainly at plant populations. I'm especially interested in how early snowmelt in mountain areas is influencing the persistence of plant populations. So one thing that happens uh, with early snowmelt and reduced snowpack is that it can make for very dry conditions. It can uh, expose plants uh, to, to drought. And so that's part of what we're looking at, our impacts of drought on plant populations. Why did you select uh, the research site in the Rocky Mountains uh, for your ongoing research projects? Sure, so this is an area where I've been working for more than three decades. And uh, so we know a lot about these plants and their pollinators and the environment that they live in. And so for us, they've become a model species for understanding ecology and responses to environmental change in much the same way that uh, people think of fruit flies or mice as model systems uh, in molecular biology and genetics. So how do you study climate change out in the Rocky Mountains, like in the field? How do you go about this? Yeah, so um, since we're interested in natural selection, we, we need to know uh, for an individual plant uh, both what kinds of traits it has and then also its fitness. Uh, so did it survive? If it survived, did it make seeds? And natural selection is essentially the relationship between fitness and some trait. So we go out to these populations, uh, we measure a lot of different traits. We look at both uh, leaf traits, so things like uh, the, the thickness of the leaf, uh, how efficient it is at using water when it photosynthesizes. 
Uh, we also look at flower traits, things like the shape of the flower, the color of the flower, uh, the production of nectar that attracts pollinators, and also uh, compounds that give the flower a fragrance, which uh, can also influence pollination and herbivory. So we measure those traits on a lot of plants, and we also are measuring their survival and reproduction. And uh, we've done that uh, now for uh, 18 years in the same populations, looking at the same traits. So this is perhaps uh, the longest running, or at least one of the very longest running studies in the world of how natural selection on the same traits uh, is, is changing over, over time. And what we discovered was that in years when the snow melts earlier, there's then a, a, a long period of drought before uh, the summer monsoon rains start in the Colorado Rockies. So the soil dries out. And in those years, we see different patterns of natural selection on traits. So in, in wet years, in late snowmelt years, it's, it's advantageous uh, for these plants to produce uh, uh, flowers with uh, long tubes to them. They're, they're hummingbird pollinated. Uh, they have a, a tube shape to the flower. And uh, the pollinators prefer to visit flowers like that. So they have higher pollination success and they set more seed. But in dry years, so early snowmelt years, that's no longer the case uh, because seed production becomes limited by water instead. So you get a change in the way that natural selection works. If you look at leaf traits, certain kinds of features of plants are, of the plants are beneficial in, in the dry years. Uh, for example, having thick leaves, uh, being able to uh, photosynthesize while losing less water uh, through the, the stomates of the leaves. And so uh, there are these changes uh, in the way that natural selection works. And so what we're doing now, we also have looked at the, the genetics of some of these traits. And so we can combine the genetic information with that information on natural selection to predict how fast they evolve and um, see if that evolution response is fast enough uh, to keep the populations from declining in the face of drought. So, oh man, I've got so many follow-up questions. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, so uh, there are a couple things uh, specifically referring back to um, your discussion about speciation. Um, looking at your research, uh, we see mentions of the concept of hybrid zones, um, which your website describes as a natural laboratory for measuring mechanisms of ecological speciation. Um, could you speak to uh, what exactly these hybrid zones are and how they can be used to uh, research speciation? Sure. Uh, yeah. So we've also uh, uh, done research on on formation of, 
of new species, uh, speciation. And uh, so, so these, these same plants that we're studying for, for climate uh, change, uh, there's two very closely related species that uh, form hybrids in nature. So uh, people think, think about species as, as being reproductively isolated. But in, in plants, about 10% of species do uh, produce hybrids, uh, at least on, on occasion uh, in nature. And so uh, in this particular case, uh, it's along an elevational gradient. So there's one species at lower elevation, the second species at higher elevation, and you find hybrids in between. And so, uh, Ecological speciation is a process in which two species are kept separate, maintained separate, uh, because uh, different kinds of natural selection pushing their trait values in different directions in the different environments that they live in. Um, so in this case, the environments differ in terms of what kinds of animal pollinators are most important and also in terms of uh, water availability and, and other features of the habitat. And so um, we use, in, in these hybrid zones, what we've done is uh, to plant out seeds that are either uh, seeds that we, we make just by crossing two plants that are the same species, or seeds that are hybrids that we make by doing a cross between the two species. And then we can look at how fit these offspring are in, in these different environments. And to some extent, this idea of ecological speciation does occur. We do find that in the species that normally lives up high, in fact, its seeds have higher survival and those plants reproduce more up high than the other species. But it's interesting because um, uh, hybrids uh, can do well in the intermediate uh, areas. And um, that turns out because, to be because these hybrids are, are really good at, at dealing with dry conditions. They're very, very water use efficient. Um, and so in this particular case, the, the hybrids can, can actually be quite fit in certain environments, which is, which is why uh, you see them out in nature. We know that your research involves um, the interactions between uh, climate and evolutionary processes. Um, can you give us some information about how climate can influence evolution? Sure. So um, with, with climate changing, there, there are changes in a lot of environmental conditions. And what that does is to alter the kinds of traits that plants and animals have that, that make them uh, more fit. And so you get a change in natural selection. And organisms can then evolve in response to that new natural selection. And that in turn uh, can uh, assist in preventing the, the population from going extinct. 
And that's actually a process that some people call evolutionary rescue. Evolution is rescuing the populations from climate change. Evolutionary rescue is when a declining species evolves to fit a new environment and restores its population. Species can adapt to human-driven changes in the environment, but the rate of climate change and habitat loss can still be too much for species to survive. Traits need time to change. Uh, one of the research topics that um, uh, we've heard about from your lab uh, is the ability or the, the idea of predicting evolutionary response in the context of climate change. Mm -hmm. So uh, now hearing that um, you know the pollinator uh, plant interaction can be disrupted by climate change, um, what predictions do you have uh, for the way that evolution will occur um, in these populations? Uh, over the course of the changing climate? What we're seeing so far is um, uh, selection for uh, leaf traits that um, give higher survival under, under drought. Uh, so we may see some, some evolution of, the, of those leaf traits. At the same time, we're seeing a, a weakening of natural selection on some flower traits because uh, even if a long flower means that a plant is more successful at getting visited by hummingbird or hawk moth pollinators, it still may not make more seeds because uh, it's now limited by water, it just doesn't have enough water resources to, to fill those seeds. And so we're seeing shifts in the kinds of traits that are uh, being favored uh, by natural selection. And um, what we're doing now is putting that together with information that we have on, on the genetics of, of the traits uh, so that we can make more quantitative predictions about how fast traits will evolve and whether that's sufficient or not. Um, to uh, keep the populations from declining. Uh, going back, um, another area of research um, involves your uh, floral volatile emissions. Um, I think you talked about those a little bit before. Uh, what exactly is their involvement in this evolutionary process? And how do pollinators and herbivores respond to these emissions? Both flowers and leaves uh, of the plants that we work on, like many plants, uh, emit uh, volatile organic compounds. And uh, these compounds are what, what give them uh, a fragrance. So in the case of the, of the flowers, uh, they emit uh, up to 50 different chemical compounds. And um, we don't know what all of them do. But we do know that some pollinators are, are very responsive to one of them. So there's a particular compound. Uh, it's, it's called indole. And one of the species, uh, this is uh, a species called Ipomopsis tenuatuba that has uh, white to pale pink flowers and is visited by, by hawk moths. 
these very large moths um, uh, just after dusk. And that species emits this compound called indole uh, only at night, only during this time period when, when the moths are foraging. And the other species, Ipomopsis aggregata, does not emit this compound. And we found that you could take um, one nanogram, so this just really minuscule amount of this compound, and that's how much they emit uh, per flower per hour. You take it, that tiny amount and pipette it onto flowers of the other species that doesn't normally make it. And that will actually cause hawk moths uh, to come and approach the plant and attempt to visit those flowers. So that single compound has a really big influence on reproductive isolation uh, between the species uh, because a hawk moth foraging at, at night then is only going to visit the, the species that, that emits it. Wow, I'm, I'm so excited about that. <laughs> I, the, the undergraduate research that I did was on um, interactions between uh, hawk, moth, hawk moth larvae, like the hornworms, and um, their herbivory, herbivory response in tomato plants. So you said hawk moths, and I got really excited. <laughs> Super cool. It's a it's an amazing uh, experience to to do something like an experiment out in the field where you you do a a manipulation of that sort. You're just putting this tiny amount, one nanogram per flower, and then to see uh, a, a behavioral response of another species that it interacts with. Um, do you are some of these compounds? Um sensible by humans uh and yes. do they do they is that sort of what makes our our beautiful stop and smell the flowers sensation uh absolutely so so the two that i talked about alpha pinene so the the pinenes um they have that name because those are compounds that that pines uh, pines emit a, a lot um so if you think of the way a pine tree smells that's something like uh, what you would experience. Uh, indole is an interesting compound because it, at very low concentrations, like what these flowers emit, uh, you would probably describe it as a, a flowery, sweet flowery kind of scent. But in high concentrations, it, it actually smells bad, kind of uh, almost putrid, like, like rotting meat. So it depends on the, on the dosage. Has this research uh, influenced your favorite flower choice and favorite <laughs> flower? Or um, I, I'm pretty partial to the plants I study. Yeah. <laughs> so, are there some pollinators better than others? Yes, and it depends upon the plant species that you're looking at. Uh, and the way we know this is from studies where uh, one puts a, a bag over a flower to prevent pollinators from visiting and then only opens the bag for a certain period of time so that you know that it's been visited uh, just once by a particular kind of animal and then rebagged. And then you can look at how much pollen has been placed by the pollinator 
on the stigma of the flower or how many seeds that flower makes. So it really depends on, on the plant. So, you know, it's hard to say this is the best pollinator overall. It's not like that. It really depends on, for example, how well the, the pollinator sort of fits the flower. Is it the pollinator actually making contact with the reproductive parts of the, of the flower uh, or not? That's why there are, I mean, there are lots of types of pollinators out there. And you have plants that can be very effectively pollinated by a bird, but not by a bee or vice versa. Well, it's just making me think of like, while you're saying this, I'm thinking about different pollinators like bats and like, how do they interact? And yeah, thank you. Another question like kind of in this area is, can interactions between pollinators and plants hurt or help their response to climate change? Yeah, so we actually did a, kind of did an analysis on this. We we're trying to look at the question of, so we, we know these plants um, are having negative impacts of climate change in that with early snow melt, they're, they're not making as, as many seeds, they're not surviving as well, they have less chance of flowering the next year and so forth. And so we asked the question of, well, if we had super pollinators, essentially that pollinated everything, um, would that uh, counteract those influences? So we looked at the effect of hand pollinating flowers. So, so we go in and provide the pollen. Uh, we're the, the super pollinators, giving them supplemental pollination. And it, it turns out that that actually uh, had a fairly small effect compared to these other influences of of, of climate change as mediated through early snow melt. So um, that's just one case, and we don't know for uh, for other species, but you know it's clear that a lot of plant species are being hit on multiple fronts, right? They've got to deal with the new physical conditions with increased temperatures or or drought, but they also may have to deal with. Uh, uh, I was going to ask kind of in the same line, um, are there any particular examples of um, flower and pollinator coevolution that, you know, made you excited uh, when you first heard about them or maybe that um, your research has shined some light on? Um, yeah, so what got me excited about this uh, originally, there, there's so many uh, great uh, examples. Um, um, there's some great examples with, uh, with um, uh, insects that um, flowers actually resembles or mimics in some way the female of the species. And so the, the male insect is essentially trying to mate with the flower. Uh, it's a process of it's called pseudo copulation. Um, so again, that's a just a a system where there's a very tight, very uh, specific relationship in there. That is very interesting. I never knew that. <laughs> that's a really cool point. Here, Dr. Campbell describes an example of coevolution with flowers and insects, but there are many other examples of this happening in the natural world. For example, the shape of hummingbird beaks typically mirror the types of flowers that they pollinate. 
These interacting species, both the flower and the hummingbird, exert selective pressure on each other, meaning that they will continue to evolve in response to each other. Many scientists spend uh, a lot of their day researching at a bench. Um, and in ecology, uh, oftentimes you have the ability to do research in the field. Um, do you have certain opinions or experiences uh, about researching in the field that you know make you excited or you'd like to share? Sure, I, I, I love being a primarily field uh, researcher uh, and it is different in a lot of ways. Um, one thing that's obviously different is that you spend a lot of time outdoors uh, in, instead of indoors and in a less controlled environment. So uh, there, you may have to deal with um, hot conditions or snakes or an animal that eats your plants you were studying. Um, so there's, there, there is more uncertainty uh, in, in that regard. Uh, there's also, I think, in some ways, an opportunity to be very creative in that uh, for laboratory bench science, um, more often, and, and I'm generalizing here, but more often there, there is a set of methods or protocols uh, uh, to use, whereas in, in field ecology, um, you're often faced with coming up with your own methodology uh, for doing something. And you can just think about the simple exercise of, of a study where you want to know the influence of uh, herbivore, some animal herbivore on a plant. And so you need to do an experiment where you keep the animal out. And there, there's not a, um, you can't typically go to a, uh, uh, a website, you know, for a chemical company and order um, the uh, herbivore exclusion um, cage. Uh, it's up to you to figure out how to design it uh, for your particular circumstance. So there's a lot more, often a lot more flexibility and creativity in uh, designing methods uh, in field science as, as well. Today, look at a flower around you. It can be roses on your neighbor's lawn, even a tiny daisy peeking through a crack on the sidewalk. Even the most innocuous flower exists within a context of enormous selective pressure. Dr. Campbell highlighted how flowers and pollinators teach us about evolution and how climate change is affecting life's ability to find a way. She definitely gave us a good excuse to stop and smell the roses. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Cal Larnard. Artwork and editing was done by Leila Wahab. The interviewers were Melinda Gonzalez and Chris Troy. Post-production inserts were recorded by Cal Larnard. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at 
giving.ucmerced.edu slash radio bio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcast at www.radiobio.net.